And there's this story in Scripture that perfectly orchestrates this and and illustrates this. And it's in this context of of not only being a light to the world, but actually doing a good deed and to see how that can affect and even saving a life. And it's something from Jesus found in Scripture in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we're going to begin with verse 25. If you uh, didn't bring your Bible this morning, you want to grab that paper Bible right in front of you, turn it to page um, 869, and you'll be right there at Luke chapter 10. And if you want to follow on your phone, your tablet, uh, please do that. Download the Oakwood app. Uh, go to sermons, and sermon notes are right there, and it has all the bullet points, all the scriptures, and you're welcome every week to uh, follow along in that way. But Luke chapter 10 is a story that, that I mentioned briefly uh, last week, and we're actually going to read the whole thing today. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you probably are familiar with the story. It's the, the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. And so that may, that may send off some whistles uh, for some of you. Some of you may say, oh, I don't even know what a Samaritan is. Uh, we're we're going to talk about that in here in a minute. And so uh, let, let's just begin to read this passage together, beginning with verse 25. And it starts out with a backstory before Jesus tells the story. And the story that he's telling is to, to illustrate a point. And so this is what the scripture says it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to, you know, Jesus is powerful. He's been speaking uh, words. There's a large crowd following Jesus now. And and so the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and and the teachers of the law, they're coming against him. And so someone who who has studied it, well studied in the law, a lawyer that defends the law, stood up and put him to the test saying this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? And then Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And I love Jesus sometimes because when people come to him with a question, he like answers them back with a question, which is kind of just putting it all back on them. It's like, you know, I want to find out your heart. What is your intention here? So I'm going to answer your question with a question. What is written in the law? And how do you read that? And he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now we're going to pause there for just a second to understand that that the lawyer here was right. I mean, he answered Jesus correctly. If you could perfectly keep the law, if you could love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and if you would perfectly love your neighbor as yourself, then, 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 then you, you, you would be perfect. And you would get to go to heaven just based on the fact that you're sinless because you were keeping these two rules perfectly. Now, if you think of all the laws in the Bible, and if you've read the Bible, you know there's these books with these names like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And they give us all these laws and they give us all these rules. And basically what the lawyer has done here is he summarized all those. Because, you know, we read stuff like in the Ten Commandments. It says, do not use the Lord your God's name in vain. Well, if you love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, with all your mind, if you do that, then you're not going to use his name in vain. If you love your Lord your God with all your strength, all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, if you, if you do that, you know, you're, you're going to keep the Sabbath day holy when he wants you to worship, when he wants you to focus on him. If you do those things, you're going to keep his laws. And so that's about your relationship with God. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, love your neighbor as yourself is about your relationship with fellow man. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't commit adultery with, their, with the spouse. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't steal from them. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't gossip or slander about them. And so you can take all of the laws in Scripture and really boil it down to do these two things. Is that you love God and you love others. And if you live that out perfectly, 
you can go to heaven. Now, has anyone lived that out perfectly except Jesus Christ? No way. And so for Jesus to say that at the end, he's almost catching the, law, the lawyer, just like the lawyer's trying to catch him. He's saying, hey, you answer correctly, do this, and you will live. You will have eternal life. But then it goes on in verse 29. And the lawyer says something else. He says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that question right there was really uh, something else too. It's like, what's the bare minimum? Like, my neighbor can't be everybody, right? I mean, my neighbor, you know, so is it just the guy that lives to the left of my house or to the right? Is it just the person at work? I mean, define neighbor, Jesus. You know, if I can keep these laws, because I know I'm loving God perfectly. I've never used his name in vain. I've never cursed him. You know, oh, if I could just keep this and keep this law about my neighbor. So who is my neighbor exactly? And Jesus told him this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell amongst robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, what that means is that this guy was in really bad shape. Half dead means just like it sounds. This man is dying. We don't know if he's bleeding. Uh, probably is, but you know, internal organ damage. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we know that he is hurt tremendously, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was coming down the road, Right? It's like the preacher of the synagogue is coming down the road at that time. And so this is good for the man that's over here lying half dead, right? And it says, so a priest was coming down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He didn't do anything. He just walked on by. And it says, so likewise, a Levite. And this was someone who was chosen special by God of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. This was a special group of people that were set aside to be holy. They had these um, rules that they followed to honor God and to keep themselves pure and, and undefiled. And so a Levite, one of those religious types, you know, we, we got the priest and now we have the Levite. He says, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Wow, we're two for two here, right? You're like, way to go. Way to go, religious people. And then it says this in verse 33, and then it says, but a Samaritan. Now we have to understand a little bit about a Samaritan. Samaritans weren't widely accepted, super popular people at that time. They were half-bred Jews. Uh, they had kind of inter intermixed and, and married and, and not kept some of the laws perfectly about some of the decisions. They didn't have the exact same beliefs. And so they were kind of seeing it as outcasts and you were kind of a Samaritan. And that's why it's important to know who Jesus is saying is actually doing what Scripture says here. The person actually doing it is not the priest, and it is not the Levite, it is actually this half-bred Jew, the Samaritan. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw them, he had compassion. Now we'll pause here for a second. He saw the man in the ditch, he acknowledged him, and it says that he had compassion. Now that's where it stops for a lot of Christians. I mean, if, if you admit it. That's where it stops. Sometimes you will see that person hurting. You'll see that person that's down and out. You'll see that person going through something and you'll stop and you'll have compassion. And then you'll go on. You'll stop and you'll have compassion. But let's see what that compassion led to here in the passage. It says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds because of all his bleeding and being beaten, they bound up his wounds. They pouring oil and wine on them that was so they wouldn't get infected. He poured oil and wine on them. And then he set him on his own animal, probably a donkey or a horse. And so he set that man on his own animal. And so he was going to walk the rest of the journey. It says, and then he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. 
So now let's go back to the end of verse 33. It says that he had compassion. And then in verse 34, what happened? He took some action steps. He says, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. Six action steps because of compassion. And then it says in verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii, and that'd be like a day's wages. He took out two days wages and gave them to the innkeeper on behalf of this man who was hurt saying, take care of him, whatever you, uh, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So it's not only am I giving you these two days, I'm saying if he needs to stay a week, when I come back through, I'm going to, I'm good for it, I'm going to pay for whatever this man needs. We talk about getting involved with somebody, now he's, now he's funding this guy, trying to get him, get him back to health. In verse 36, then Jesus then turns and he asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And that lawyer that had been testing him, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You see, compassion should always lead to action. When you have compassion, it should always lead to action. In fact, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, that ought to be your next step. Is if you see a situation, if you see a problem, if you see someone hurting, is that your next thought is not, wow, I hope they're okay, and walk off. Wow, uh, man, I, I hope they get it figured out and walk away. What, you know, leaving them in their time of need. No, this is something that says we need to take action. We know of something here. We know that they need a prayer. We know that they perhaps need uh, uh, someone to hold their hand and walk them through a time. They need some wise counsel. Maybe they even need a, a little bit of financial help. And so we are people of generosity. We know God's going to provide everything we need to meet needs. And so whatever it is, compassion should always lead to action in the life of a believer. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, he's saying that we need to be a people of action. Now, so many times I think that we struggle as Christians is that we come in here on Sunday mornings and we kind of listen, but we don't do. And there's scripture about this in the book of James, and, and all these verses will be on the, on the screens for you. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 22, one of my favorite scriptures. I think I memorized it in fifth grade. It's been with me all my life. And this is what it says. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Now, that's not the whole verse. We're going to get to the next part in a little bit. But that sounds, I mean, I need that to stand out to you, though. How would listening to the word of God be deceptive? What does it mean that, that you would merely listen, like just listen? What does, it, what does it mean that you do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves? You see, there's this tension here for those who believe and call themselves Christians that we hear but don't apply sometimes. And I think this happens every single Sunday. I think this happens in churches all over the world, maybe in every church in the entire world. In fact, it's happening right this minute, right now, right here in this room. That we would listen to the word and because we don't take action, we would deceive ourselves. There's this sense in church culture today, as there must have been in James's day, right? I mean, this book written 2,000 years ago, James, one of the church leaders, early church leaders, that, that if, you, if you, in his culture, maybe it was the synagogue culture of 2,000 years ago, that if you are here in church and you merely listen to the Word of God, then you're okay. You can just listen. 
You can even feel bad for people that are in trouble, people that are sinning, people that are lost. You feel bad about those people, and that's it. You know, it's like it's kind of like you know, we get some credit for showing up, right? You know, we show up. I even brought my Bible. You know, I mean, just just listening. We should get some credit for that. That's kind of the concept. It's kind of the trap that we fall into. And the deception is that we think we are good people for attending, but not tending to needs. We think we're good people for listening and hearing, maybe nodding, maybe even giving amen here or there. But do we take the next step, which, to take, which is to take action? We hear Scripture and we hear things that we are to do in Scripture to be fully devoted Christ followers. But sometimes we don't actually take any action steps. We actually don't do anything. And if we don't apply the Word, if we don't put Scripture into action, if we don't let God's Word change our lives and actually get us to change, get us to do something for the Gospel, then James says here that we are deceived. Do not merely listen to the Word and so you deceive yourselves. And then he gives us the next part. This is the remedy. The rest of verse 22 says, do what it says. There's the remedy. Okay, so don't merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves because if you just listen, you're deceiving yourself. You actually need to take an action step. You actually need to do what it says. Now, I know for some of you, if you're being really gut-level honest this morning, this is going to mess up your whole religious experience. <laughs> it, it will. Because you're like, man, but I love, I love attending. And I love calling myself a Christian. Like, somebody comes into my, you know, my office at work. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But this is really going to mess me up. Like, what else what, what is Scripture calling me? What else does Jesus want me to do? He wants me to share my faith. Oh, in the Great Commission, He says to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means I'm probably going to have to share my faith with them. I'm probably going to have to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to need... There's these action steps. That means I'm going to need to make a difference in my community by, by getting out there. I'm going, to, I'm going to serve and I'm going to help people. I'm going, to be known, I'm going to be known as one of those people that is a safe person. That you can come to me and I'm going to pray for you. You, you come to me and you approach me at the ball game, or you come to my office, you approach me at the office, then I'm one of those people that, that people want to get advice from. Because I'm not going to give them worldly wisdom. I'm going to give them Scripture. I'm going to give them some, some wisdom from on high. You see, it will kind of mess you up. And James says, you are so deceived if you don't do what it says. And then James, he's awesome. He gives us this amazing illustration to challenge us and to motivate us. In, in the next couple verses there in James chapter 1, 23 and 24, it says this, anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And we think about that, we're like, well, that's a little absurd, you know, because most of you, I can tell by looking at you, man, you guys look good. So you looked in the mirror this morning. I mean, you don't get up and just look this way. I mean, be honest. Some of you, you had to do some work this morning. That's okay. But when you got in front of that mirror, guess what? You knew exactly what you looked like. You, you didn't walk away like two minutes later and be like, oh man, you know. You knew exactly what you looked like. In fact, you might have gone back for more. Be like, man, this is, you know, this doesn't just happen. You know, there's got some work here this morning. You get, get looking good before I go to church, you know. And you're, so you're, you're looking into the mirror and, and he says that if, if you don't do what the Word of God says, it's like you look in the mirror and you forget what you look like because we are the essence of God. We are the servants 
of God. Action isn't simply what we do, it's who we are. We are the essence of the gospel put into action in the world. And so we can't forget what we look like because it's who we are. We don't, we, we don't simply do good works. We are the essence of good works to the lost and dying world. You are a good work in Christ Jesus. And in the church sometimes, there's just a lot of sitting in the pew, and there's maybe going to Sunday school forever, and maybe Wednesday night class, and there's, there's attending, and there's learning, and those are important things, don't get me wrong, that's part of your faith journey is to get knowledge from the Word, but if you don't actually do something with the knowledge that you get, if it actually doesn't make a difference in your life um, Monday through Saturday, then James would say you are deceived, because you've heard it, but you haven't put it into action, you haven't done anything. And when you stand up and do something for Jesus, I'm telling you what, the world will take notice. And compassion should always lead to action. Now, um, when I got up this morning, and it was quite, quite early, um, I did look in the mirror. Okay, because this doesn't happen naturally. Now, if I came to church this morning, and maybe some of you are like, you need to look in the mirror. <laughs> but, um, but if I came to church this morning, and like my hair was all like, you know, you know just kind of like, because when my hair gets long, it gets really thick. And it, it is kind of scary. Um, sometimes there can be like a nest in the back of it, and it looks like an animal, small rodent. I got my hair in the middle of the night, built a little nest there. And if I came in like that this morning, you guys would probably walk in and be like, whoa, man, his hair, <laughs> Eric, your hair. I mean, you would come to me probably. If you really love me, you would come to me and say, Eric, your hair is jacked up. <laughs> you, your hair is a mess. Now, what would you expect me to do if you came in and made that comment to me this morning? You would expect me to run to a mirror and look and do what? Fix it, Right? You say, well, go fix it, right? It would be really weird if you came to me, man, Eric, your hair is so jacked up. I just want to let you know you need to do something about that. Would you pray for me about that? Yeah, I'm not going to do anything about it. I just, I just, I'm just going to pray. Yeah, would you just hold a good thought for me about that? Would you counsel me? And that, can we talk about that? Can we have a small group this week and talk about my hair? No, you would just say, be normal and do what? Go take a step of action. Go look in the mirror and fix it. Go do something. You see, we laugh about it because it's so absurd, and yet that's exactly what we do as Christians sometimes, is we hear the challenge of the Word in our life, and we know it's supposed to make a difference, and we know we're supposed to live for Him wherever we go, and yet we don't do it, and it's the struggle. In the next chapter of James, in, in chapter 2, verse 14, he goes on, and this is what he says. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? How can such a faith save them? It's okay. You can say, oh, wait a minute. He's kind of calling you out there. Do you realize what he just said in the, second, in the second line there? The second question? What good is it, my brother, sister, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? That last question, what he's really saying is maybe that faith isn't real. That's exactly what he's saying. He's calling out. I mean, you can say it's like, Ouch. How can a faith, a belief that you have, and your faith believing what is hoped for, being certain of what you do not see, how can that, if it's never exercised, be a faith that actually saves? That you would be enough of a faith that would actually save you? That's what he's saying. I mean, he's getting really real here. I think it's getting really real for us, isn't it? Now hang on, because there's more scripture here. You go to verse 17 of James chapter 2, and he says this, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. You may say, well, I'm a person of faith, but I don't do anything for Jesus or the gospel. He would say, you're dead. 
Goodbye. But someone will say, well, you have faith and, and, and I have deeds. And he says, show me your faith without any deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I like to, to, to change that word show there to evidence. Okay? Evidence me your faith without deeds and I will evidence my faith to you by what I do. You believe that there is one God? You say, yeah, faith, I believe there's one God, God, Jehovah God overall. And then he says, good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Because they believe in God, but that doesn't mean they're going to heaven. They're in hell with Satan. And they're one of his workers. Even they have belief. And you say, well, I have belief that there is one God. He says, good. That's where it starts. But you need to take action steps. This needs to be exemplified in your life. There needs to be an evidence and a showing of the faith that you have. Because even the, de even the demons believe. They believe in Jesus. And they shudder. And then in the next few verses, it talks about Abraham and Isaac. And if you're one of those people, you've been in church for a long time, you probably know. Abraham's a patriarch in the book of Genesis. God makes a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, hey, um, I want you to go into this land. I want you to take your people. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you a people. And just out of you and Sarah, who are barren and have no kids right now, out of you guys is going to grow my people Israel. It's going to come from you. And it's a covenant that God makes with Abraham. And so God always keeps his promises. Now we're in Genesis chapter 12. And you may say, well, that's only 12 chapters of evidence so far. But God always keeps his promises. Now, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, they got a little ahead of the game. She had a maidservant named Hagar. And they were getting up in age. You know, some scholars believe, you know, 80 to 100 years, somewhere in that range. And by the way, that's not good childbearing years. Anybody 80 in here, can you say amen for us on that? Anybody say amen? Not, okay, I'm not having, not having a child next week. Okay, good. And, and so that's what's happening. And so they kind of, you know, circumvent God and say, okay, well then, Abraham, we're going to need to make this seed come through this maidservant. And, and so there's Ishmael. But Ishmael isn't the chosen one. Ishmael isn't the one that God promised. So they have this, this son through their maidservant. And then God says, oh wait, you're going to have a son. And then you find out that Sarah is pregnant. A really, really pregnant lady. It was way up there in her years. And then they have this son named Isaac. And Isaac's the one that's going to carry the name. Isaac's the one that's going to make it a great nation and a great people. And it's going to be through Isaac that all of that's done. And so God does a miracle there. And then he challenges Abraham. He wants to see what kind of man of faith Abraham really is. He says, Abraham, I want you to grab Isaac. I want you to grab a couple servants. I want you to grab some wood. And we're going to go up on this mountain and we're going to make a sacrifice. And while they're going along the way, I think Abraham is, you know, thinking and talking to God and saying, well, where's the sacrifice going to come from? And he's like, I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And when they get up to the mountain, they build an altar to God. And God tells Abraham, I want you to put Isaac on the altar. I want you to sacrifice Isaac. I'm sure that was a weird conversation between a father and a son. As Abraham began to put Isaac on the altar and began to tie him down. Dad, you know, what are you doing? I mean, Dad, where, where's, where's the lamb? Or where's the, where's the goat? Where's the sacrificial animal? Abraham went to the point where he actually raised the knife to take his son's life and to offer him as a sacrifice. And then God stopped him. 
And God provided an animal over the thicket. And he untied Isaac and he took him off the altar and they sacrificed a ram and they gave praise to God. And God gave him a substitution sacrifice for his son Isaac. And if you read in the, in the New Testament, um, there's some scriptures that talk about Abraham's faith. He's in the faith hall of fame. Abraham, a man of faith. He was a man of faith because he took some action, didn't he? He did exactly what God told him to do, even to the point of death of his son. And when we get to the next verse in James 2, that's what he's talking about is this Abraham and Isaac situation. This is what he says. He says that you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And that his faith was made complete by what he did. Being totally obedient to God, doing exactly as God commanded him to do, it was credited to him as faith and as righteousness. And then he says in verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And James 2.26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's not about activity. It's about ministry. It's not about just doing some activities. It's about ministry. It's about actually obeying Scripture, taking some action step, and doing what the Lord has called you to do. And church, it's time that we who call ourselves Christ followers, that we who call ourselves Christians, that we do the work of ministry to touch people's hearts and to get them to live for Jesus Christ, to present the Gospel to them so they can respond to the love of Jesus Christ. Because we need to be a people of action. Compassion should always lead to action. And here's my prayer for this. As, as we look at this series, Hometown, Love Where You Live over the next several weeks, I want you to remember this talk this morning. Because we're going to be talking about action steps that we need to take as Christians over the next several weeks. And more importantly, I want you to remember what Jesus commands us to do in the Word. We should actually do it. When he says you are to love one another, that that love is a love of action. It's not something you think in your mind. It's something you do with your heart and your hands and your mouth. It's something that you actually do for people is to show them Christ's love. And it requires us to exercise our faith. And it might require you to look and say, is my faith a dead faith? Is my faith a faith that could save me? Because it should be exemplified by your works. The evidence of Christ's work in your life, of His saving grace. The works of the Christian is not to be saved. It's evidence that you are saved. And every Christian should have those evidences in their life. So I want you to think, what will I do this week to love where I live? What, what will you do to put your faith that you claim you have into action? Because I don't want to say, get caught as a church that says, hey, we came and we sat in rows every week. We raised our hands. We sang songs of praise. We actually have to take action. We have to actually let the Holy Spirit work in our life and actually go out and do something. And it's not about activity. It's about ministry. It's about actually reaching out to the people who need it. I don't know if you've ever played the basketball game. You played horse or pig. And you shoot a shot, and then the next person shoots a shot. And, and if they miss it, they get a letter. And then you try to spell out the word. And we do this thing at the end of that game. That at, at the very end is if, if you're, you know, they're on G or they're on E and it's the last letter. If I shoot a shot, and then they shoot a shot and they miss it, then I have to prove it. 
They'll say, prove it. And what you do is you have to step back into the exact same spot and make that shot again, or the game's not over, it just continues going on. I think that's the way it is for a lot of people in the world. Maybe even God himself is saying, you say you have faith in me? You say you love my son? Prove it. Prove it. I think the lost and dying world, and even the community in our hometown, that's what they're saying is, oh, you go to church, and oh, you're a Christian, and oh, you love Jesus, then I want you to prove it. Prove it. Show me something. Show me how you are different than everybody else in the world. When you love where you live, we open our hearts to God. We allow His Spirit to work in us. We actually become a people of action. I'll tell you what, we're going to see a lot of difference in Unit Oklahoma. It's our hometown. God wants us to love where 